All right. Praise God. Well, I want to encourage everybody to uh, please stay after service. We have a little bit of an extended time today. We don't have to leave until 1.30, and we have some special hors d'oeuvres in the back. Uh, the hospitality team and one of the CGs prepared it for us, and so please stick around to celebrate and fellowship. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We're going to get into the Word of God. And hopefully today's word will be a little bit shorter, but I can't make promises. Because you know me, I love to <laughs> preach the word. Okay, Psalm 133, 1 through 3. If you're joining us here in person, it'll be right behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on the screen at home. Psalm 133, 1 through 3. This is God's word. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again so much, Lord. Thank you for loving this church. Thank you for our new elders. And thank you now for your word. Your word is life. Without your word, Lord, we would be utterly lost. So please speak. Please show us who you are. Show us your will through your word. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If somebody came up to you today and asked you to describe God in one word, one word that you probably would not say is enthusiastic. Amen? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you, you would. But most likely, that would not be the word that would come to your mind to describe God. Now, my kids are enthusiastic when they get to play their iPads after dinner. They have a limited amount of time. Or maybe Nintendo Switch. They get very excited. My wife and I are enthusiastic when our kids go down to bed and we get a free evening. So we're enthusiastic. But God? Enthusiastic? I mean, he controls the world. He judges the world. Nothing catches him by surprise. So that's usually not the word that comes to mind. And yet, in Psalm 133, you could say, God sounds enthusiastic. Amen? He sounds excited. And anytime someone begins a statement, not a question, but a statement with the word how, they're expressing emotion. That's how people talk, right? There's enthusiasm behind statements that start with how. And we all do that too. How amazing is that? Oh, how horrible. Oh, how sweet. Right? We all do that. So when you start a phrase with the word how, you're excited. And this is what God says here. How good and pleasant. How good and pleasant. But in combination with how, if you now add behold at the beginning of your statement, now you're really excited. Now you're yelling into a megaphone. You're saying, behold, look at that. Check that out. So not only are you excited, now you're wanting someone to see something, right? I remember this was many years ago, but my family and I, we were hiking up Torrey Pines, you know, in San Diego. Beautiful. There's a world-class golf course there. And my kids were really little, and I remember my youngest son, Isaiah, was three years old, and he was working hard on his little legs, and he was just marching right behind me. Me and Isaiah were at the very, very end. And so he was following, and he was doing his little best, hiking up this trail, and then we finally crested, right? We got to the very top of that hill, 
And then I remember turning to Isaiah and I said, Isaiah, check that out. Look at that. And what I pointed to was this vista, right? This beautiful, breathtaking view of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. That's what you see when you get to the top of Torrey Pines. And so I I pointed at this stunning view of the Pacific Ocean. And in that moment, my little three-year-old son, with these like puffy red cheeks, his hair was all matted like that. And then he just kind of squinted his eyes. And you could just tell his eyes and his mouth got real big. And he's like, whoa, right? He's like, whoa. And he beheld the ocean. And I remember even a few weeks after that event, when I was tucking him into bed, Isaiah would randomly get this faraway look. Okay, I'm all tucking him in. I'm all wanting to pray for him. And then he suddenly goes, Daddy, Mommy, Joshua, Samantha, Uncle, Auntie, Isaiah, you know, talking about himself. <laughs> He's just naming his whole family. He's like, we go up the mountain and saw ocean. <laughs> so he, he's just remembering that just randomly, even weeks later. And so what am I saying? When somebody says, look at that, check that out, and there's something worth looking at, that'll leave an impression. That'll impress you. That'll impact you. And this is how God wants us to feel about what he's pointing to in our passage today. I know we just kind of read it and we go, okay, what is that, unity? Okay, but God's saying, behold, check it out. This should leave an impact, an impression on you. And not only that, but he says, look at this thing that I'm pointing to. It is both good and pleasant. And many things are pleasant but not good. And many things are good but not pleasant. But very few things are both, right? So, for example, if you're relaxing at home by yourself with several bottles of wine open, that can be pleasant, but that's not good. That's really not good. Other things are the opposite. They're good, but they're not pleasant, like memorizing the entire book of Romans. Okay, if you want to do that, go for it. Maybe sitting through this sermon, right? Things could be good, but not pleasant. But God wants us to behold something that is both good and pleasant. And immediately, this puts whatever he's pointing to in the rare category. This is extremely rare. So God is saying, pay attention. This thing that I'm pointing to is better than the majority of the things in your life the majority of the things in the world. So God's enthusiasm enthusiasm should grab our attention right from the beginning, and we should be at this point anticipating something great. Okay, you should be sitting on the edge of your seat. It's like, what is God going to say? What is he pointing to? Okay, is he going to be talking about something in the end times? Is it regarding eternity, heaven, maybe the secret to contentment in life? I don't know. But what is God going to say? And then God says what? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when believers dwell in unity. Amen? Unity. And then all of you sink back in your chair, and you're like, oh, unity. Okay. Behold, a bunch of Christians who are having potluck and eating together and having a good time. Oh, yeah, let me see. No. Right? That's not usually what you think about when you think about something that will impress us and impact us. And yet, for God, this is how he feels about unity. He's clearly enthusiastic. He he wants us to see and understand this. Why? Well, if you look at the rest of Psalm 133, it tells us why. So let me just briefly mention three reasons why. First, God is so enthusiastic about unity because unity perfumes God's people with the aroma of Christ. It perfumes God's people with the aroma of Christ. And unity has a very strong aroma. It has a fragrant smell. So if you look at Psalm 133, verse 1 and 2, 
God says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil. Now, this oil was an anointing oil that was poured on Aaron's head in Leviticus 8. And I sometimes wonder how much more engaging the Bible would be if it was a scratch and sniff Bible. You know, sometimes I wonder that. Now, some parts of the Bible, you don't want to scratch and sniff, right? But when it comes to this oil, that would be amazing. I'm like, gosh, I wish I could just scratch and sniff that part of the Bible and smell what this oil was like. Because according to scripture, this oil was amazing. But God gave us a recipe for this oil in Exodus 30, verses 22 through 33. You don't have to turn there. But there were five ingredients that made up this oil. Pure myrrh. This was a liquid made from aromatic resin. Calamus. This was an ingredient used in rich perfumes. Cinnamon, like the cinnamon on your cinnamon buns. Cassia. This was another aromatic plant similar to cinnamon. And then finally, olive oil to suspend all of that. And this is how they would make the anointing oil. And all the aromatic spices would be ground to powder, and they would be mixed with pure myrrh, and then all of it would be suspended in this olive oil. So you can imagine, once this oil was created, how fragrant it would be. There would be this intense aroma. And once Aaron had this poured all over his head, running down his robes, you could smell him even inside of Bath and Body Works, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how strong a smell would be around him, you would smell him. Okay? It would be strong. And so David now in the psalm is saying, unity is like that oil. It's like oil, this fragrant aroma. Now at this point you might think, okay, great, unity is nice. It smells nice. And then we might move on. But if we do, you're going to miss the significant thing that God is saying. But God is saying, Why? He's telling us why unity smells so good. Okay, we, we need to ask that question. Why does unity have this fragrant aroma? Okay, why does it smell so good? Well, the reason why unity smells so good, if you look at the rest of Scripture, is because it's a direct result of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. Okay, this unity, if we have unity here, and we do, but this unity is here because of Jesus' sacrificial death for us. His death, his love upon the cross for us, that is where this unity comes from. And the Bible says it is an aroma. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Do you see that? The unity we have here because of Jesus' sacrificial love on the cross. This is the only reason why we're here together, united that has the aroma of Christ. In other words, Jesus' smell is all over this church. It is all over this church. And just like the spices that were crushed into powder and suspended in oil, when Jesus' life was crushed for us, the benefits of his death are now carried to us by the Holy Spirit, which oil oftentimes represents. But the benefits, the blessings of Jesus' life crushed for us is now carried by the Holy Spirit to us. And what's one of the results? Unity. Does that make sense? Unity. So the unity among believers comes from Jesus' death upon the cross, and it smells like him. It's a direct result of his love unto death for us. But how does his death bring sweet-smelling unity? Well, first, the cross levels the ground we all stand on. Amen? It levels the ground completely. 
It removes all the barriers to our unity. Because the cross humbles all of us down to the same height. The cross shows us all who we really are. And it shows us that we are all in deep, deep trouble and we are all in deep, deep need. In need of him. So it shows us that we are all sinners under God's judgment. And it shows us that we all need Christ's salvation. We need to be rescued by him. And by embracing those two things about ourselves, if you want to, you need to do what? Stoop very, very low. Lower than you ever imagined. You need to be humbled in order to accept the truth of the cross. That's why so many people can't become Christians. They don't want to humble themselves. Yeah, they have questions about evolution and dinosaurs and, you know, Christian hypocrisy and this church hurt me before and they have all these issues, right? But here's the real issue. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to acknowledge what the cross is declaring. You are a sinner under God's judgment and you need to be rescued. They don't want to acknowledge that. So whether you're a king or a criminal, or anyone in between, everyone has to stoop to the lowest point in order to pass through the humble doorway of the cross. That is the doorway of Christ. And so once you have accepted Christ, once you have received what the cross is saying about you, then imagine this. It is incredibly hard for you to now look at another believer, maybe somebody next to you, who has also humbled themselves that low, so now imagine you, you guys are both on the ground. Your noses are touching the ground, right? That's how low you have to get. And it's very hard in that posture to look at somebody next to you and say, man, what's wrong with you? You're so dumb, right? You're such a big failure. Why do you always screw up, right? Why are you like that? Who likes you at church? How can you say these things when you're humbled that low, your nose is to the ground, and now you're looking at a believer right next to you, and their nose is to the ground, it's very hard to say that. Only those, those who don't realize how humbling the cross is, those are the ones who can say those things. So the cross levels the ground we all stand on and removes the barriers to unity, but that's not all. The cross also takes people of all different backgrounds and gives them a love for each other that they otherwise wouldn't have. This is what Jesus meant in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, what did Jesus really mean there? This love that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about a love that you could not have apart from me. Right? That's how the world will know you are his disciples. So for all you parents out here today, he's not talking about your love for your children. Okay, as great as that love is, that is not what makes the world take notice that you are Jesus' disciples. For others of you, your love for your friends who look like you, talk like you, have the same interests as you. Okay, that love is not what would make the world take notice and see you as Jesus' disciples. And why is that? Well, as good as those things are, okay, that love for your kids or love for your friends, that's genuine, that's good, but that's the kind of love you would have otherwise, right? You would have that love. You don't need Jesus to love people who are just like you or to live your, love your own kids. Even non-Christians, pagans do that. But it's the love between people who would otherwise never even talk to one another. Who would otherwise hate one another. We're talking about a community of natural enemies, not a community of natural friends. Okay, that love, if you have that kind of love for one another, then Jesus said, the world will take notice. And they will know that you are my disciples. And where do we get that kind of love? It's only in the cross. Right? Only the cross that humbles us that low 
and breaks down everything in us and postures, right, that raises ourselves up above others. It breaks it all down. Okay, my ethnicity, my paycheck, my education, my GPA, what school I went to, what church I go to, how much Bible I know. The cross humbles us, breaks it all down. And then now we look to the left and right and we're like, we're all the same. It doesn't matter who you are. Right? You could be of a background that I just abhorred. I hated that before coming to Christ. And yet you're my brother and sister now. Right? You're, you're from a school that I just despised. Right? Because we competed against you and you always beat us. But it doesn't matter. Right? You're my brother. You're my sister now. So is that clear? This is the unity that Psalm 133 is talking about. It's the unity that comes from the crushed life of Christ on the cross. And there's an aroma about it. It's fragrant. It perfumes God's people with the aroma of Christ. So that's why God was enthusiastic. Number two, he's also enthusiastic because unity consecrates God's people for service. It consecrates God's people for service. So the most interesting thing about Psalm 133 is not that it talks about unity, but it's the way it talks about unity. That's the most interesting thing. It's the imagery it uses for unity. But it's the imagery of Aaron being consecrated as the high priest. It's a very weird picture for unity, right? Unless the Bible pointed it out, we wouldn't have thought that. But this is a very strange picture. But it's the picture of Aaron having oil poured on his head, and the oil runs all the way down his beard, all the way down his robes, all the way down to the edges of his garments. So it says in Leviticus 8, verse 10, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And it wasn't like a little drop. It was a lot of oil that began to run down. Later in verse 30, it says, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So this was Aaron's consecration as high priest in order to serve God. Okay, that's the picture we get here. And in the same way, his sons were also consecrated as priests to serve God. And this consecration is what set them apart for the most enormous responsibility that, that can be given to man. But unholy men, because Aaron was a sinner, so were his sons. It's very clear in scripture. They were sinful men. But this is a responsibility that God gave to unholy men so that they could serve a holy God. So Aaron and his sons who were unholy were called to handle holy things. And the only way they could do that is if they were consecrated. So that's the picture here. So there's no greater responsibility than that given to men. And this is why it was also the deadliest responsibility. This was extremely dangerous. Now, when people think about being an Old Testament priest, they don't immediately think of danger. Right? That's not what comes to mind. When you think about somebody becoming a pastor or an elder, you don't think of danger. Being a logger is dangerous. Being a landmine sweeper, that's dangerous. But priest in the Old Testament? Okay, that's not what people think. And yet, for the people of Israel, from the very beginning, when priests began to function in their roles, they saw this as very dangerous. It is a very dangerous job. It says in Exodus 19.22, And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. They need to be made holy. Why? Because they're not holy. 
They need to be made holy lest the Lord break out against them. In other words, lest the Lord kills them. And this literally happened to Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two oldest sons. But they were priests. They were set apart for this role. And then they just kind of approached the altar any which way, started offering strange fire. And then that warning, exact thing happened. God's fire broke out and it burned them alive. They died on the spot. So they disregarded their consecration as priests and the fire of the Lord broke out against them and consumed them. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the Old Testament priests were an unholy group of people called to interact with holy things. It was a very dangerous job and it was the anointing oil that consecrated them. Okay, please track with me. It was the oil that set them apart and made them holy so that they could serve God. So what does all of this have to do with unity? Well, in order for the oil to consecrate the priests for service, the oil itself was consecrated. In other words, the oil itself was set apart and holy. Does that make sense? The oil itself had to be holy in order for it to make the person it was poured on holy. And in the same way, unity is now that oil. And so what does all of this mean? Unity is holy. Unity is holy in the eyes of God. This is why he's so excited. And why is unity so important? Why is it so holy? It's because when unity comes upon a group of people like right here, then what happens? We become anointed by that holy oil of unity, and now we are set apart to serve God. We can now serve God because we are united we have that holy oil of unity poured upon us. Unity, just like the Old Testament priests, sets the church apart for ministry. Does that make sense? See, if a church is not united, they can do nothing for God. God will not work through them. God will not bless them. God will not do anything through them. I mean, yeah, they can try to make events happen, have some programs. I mean, they're doing a lot of activity, but it's not coming from God because they're not united. God only blesses unity. Unity is a prerequisite. It is holy. It is what sets us apart to serve him so that we can serve him. And so unity is a holy thing. And because unity is a holy thing, it's not to be messed with. Amen? It's not to be messed with. I mean, look at how passionate God is about unity in Scripture. But in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, this is what God says. It's worth paying attention. There are six things that the Lord hates. Anytime the Bible says God hates this, you better pay attention. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And I'll explain in a little bit what that means. But here are the six things. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies. So God says, I hate these six things. I hate them. But then notice he mentions one more thing, a seventh thing. And then he says, the seventh one is an abomination. So what, what is he talking about here? What he's saying is, once you add the seventh one, it makes the entire list an abomination to him. It makes the entire list an abomination. And here's the seventh thing. It is one who sows discord among brothers. It's somebody who makes a church divided, who's divisive. 
who sows discord. God says, when I see that, that makes all these other things an abomination. And what is he talking about? He's saying this seventh thing, somebody who sows discord, is what enables all the six other things I hate. And so once I see the seventh thing, then it makes the entire list an abomination. Does that make sense? So this is what God is saying. God says, I hate these six things, but that seventh one, the one who sows discord among brothers, that is an abomination. That makes everything an abomination. Why? Because the divisive person enables all those other things to happen. A lying tongue, being haughty, you know, abusing people, hurting people. It makes all those things possible. So what... God is saying is unity among believers is a holy thing. You don't mess with it. It's not to be messed with. And this is why the enemy is always wanting to break unity among believers. And he's been very good at it. Okay, by and large, this is the number one tactic that the enemy has against the church. Probably heresy, turning people away from the word of God, and disunity. But he's been very good at it because he knows this is the most direct way to take God's people out of service to God. And to bring them under God's judgment. So the enemy is constantly trying to sow disunity. And let me just briefly mention two ways he does it. Okay, these are his two favorite, favorite ways to break unity. The first one is a critical spirit. It is a critical spirit. And I say this in love, but some of you guys have a critical spirit. You do. And people can tell. Now there is always a place for criticism that is motivated by love where the end goal is to lift others up. So there is a place for criticism. We need to be discerning and critical at times. There's also a place for a critical mind. Okay, you need to discern truth from error. You gotta be critical sometimes when you hear things. You don't just swallow everything. You don't accept everything. Okay, we're motivated by love, of course. The end goal is to always lift people up, but we should be critical at times. But I remember my wife told me this, but she was in chapel at Biola one time, and she was listening to J.P. Moreland, and she said this statement by Moreland really struck her struck her. It had a deep impact on her. But Moreland, at one point in his sermon, said, it's good to have a critical mind, but not a critical spirit. So we should have a critical mind, but not have a critical spirit. And Moreland's right. Because there is a time and place to be critical if it's motivated, motivated by love, motivated to lift people up, but that is not the person with a critical spirit because the person with a critical spirit is operating out of pride. It is not to lift somebody up. And Philippians 2.3 tells us pride is what breaks unity. And humility, considering others better than ourselves, is what brings unity. And so a critical spirit, which comes from pride, and that's where it comes from. If you have a critical spirit, and some of you guys do, it's because you're proud. And that pride is what breaks unity. And so why does a critical spirit come from pride? Well, the reason why is because a person who is constantly critical of another person or another group, what are they really saying? Okay, when you are being critical of others, what is really going on in your heart? What is really going on is you're saying, I'm different from you. But it's more than that. You're saying, I'm better than you. You're saying, I see things that you don't see. Okay, that's why you're being critical of them. Okay, how can you miss that? You don't see that? I see that. Okay, you don't care about that? I care about that. That's not important to you. God isn't important. I, I care about God. So do you see that? A critical spirit is lifting yourself up above others. My viewpoint is better than yours. My assessment is better than yours. And this is why a critical person is always a prideful person. They go together. And this is why a truly humble person is never a critical person. When you meet somebody who is truly humble, 
guaranteed they won't be critical. Not in, this, not in the way that Moreland talked about, having a critical spirit. And the reason is because humility and a critical spirit never go together. And if a proud person continues to have a critical spirit, eventually that will lead to something even worse, contempt. Contempt. If pride is stage three cancer, contempt is stage four cancer. Because contempt is the ripened fruit of selfish pride. And contempt is when another person or group is so beneath you that they're not even worthy of your attention. You're judging them, you're critical of them, but then you reach a point where you're like, you know, I don't even care about you. You just dismiss them right out of hand. That's contempt. And I remember one time listening to a marriage and family therapist talking about her experience counseling many different married couples. And I remember this really struck me. And I actually shared this recently to a married couple, not because they're struggling through this, but we were just talking about marriage. But she said in her experience, there's only one dynamic between a couple that guarantees divorce. She says, every single time I see this is guaranteed. They're getting divorced. They're going to get divorced. And so what is it? It's not anger. They could even be yelling at each other. It's not anger. It's not tears. It's not even hatred. They can even hate each other, right? She's like, there's still hope. When I see those things, there's still hope. But there's one dynamic where if I see that, unity is shattered. They're going to get divorced. And she said, it's contempt is when they reach a point where one spouse looks at the other spouse and says, I don't, you're not even worth my time. You're so beneath me, I don't even care. Go ahead, do whatever. I don't even care anymore. She's like, you're going to get divorced. And so bring this now into the church. This is how the enemy sows discord. This is how the enemy tears the church apart. It's through proud, proud people who have a critical spirit who let it fester and then becomes a contemptible spirit. And then people are just beneath them. They don't even want to deal with it. And then there's going to be division. So that's one way. And here, briefly, a second way is gossip. Gossip. Proverbs 18.21. It says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 16.28. It says, A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. So what's interesting in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs forbids two types of lies. One is false testimony, especially in the court of law, but the other is slander and gossip. So these are the two categories of lies. And I've covered this before in membership class, so if you've been in that class, you should remember this. But why would the gospel or why would the Bible consider gossip a type of lie? Why would the Bible categorize gossip as a type of lie when oftentimes, when you're gossiping, it's true, right? I mean, why are you telling your friend that thing about another friend? It's because it's probably true. But the Bible says, no, this is a lie. Why? Well, the reason why is because even though oftentimes it's based on truth, it functions just like a lie. So a person speaking gossip usually has the same motives as a person who speaks a lie. So why does somebody say lies? It's so that they can benefit from that at the cost of another person. Why do somebody gossip? So that they can benefit from that at the cost of another person. It's the same motive. A person speaking gossip often produces the same results as a person who speaks lies, which is destruction of a relationship, hurting the feelings of another, causing a lot of division. So when you're spreading lies, that's the result. When you're spreading gossip, who cares if it's true? It's the same results. And so for these reasons, the Bible says it's the same thing. 
It's just like the same thing. And by the way, the victim of a gossip feels the same betrayal as the victim of a lie. You're going to feel just as betrayed. Isn't that true? Have you ever been gossiped about? Who cares if everything that was said was true? You're going to feel totally what? Betrayed. Just as much as if somebody was spreading lies about you. It doesn't matter if what you said is true. It hurts just as much. I feel just as betrayed. And so for these reasons, the Bible says it's the same thing. I don't care if it's true. This is God speaking. I don't care if you heard it and you verified it. It is gossip and it functions just like a lie. God says I categorize it like a lie. So do you see this? In scripture, a critical spirit in gossip. In other words, pride and lies. This is what sows discord. This is what breaks a church apart. And this is what comes from the father of pride and lies, the enemy. So the enemy is always sowing pride and lies in a community in order to destroy unity. And those who engage in those things, you better watch out. Watch out. Why? Because unity is holy. It is what consecrates a church to serve God. It is a holy thing. So we must guard ourselves against this kind of disunity. We must do everything we can to protect unity. Especially today as we've commissioned our new elders, I want to strongly encourage you to ask yourselves, what can I do to support this church and these new elders? How can I foster more unity? Okay, not disunity. And some of you might be sitting here maybe with a critical spirit going, oh, I don't know about all this. I don't know about these guys. I don't know about you, Pastor Roy. I mean, that's okay if you feel that way. I mean, it's actually not okay. Come and talk to us. But I strongly encourage you to have a change of heart. Consider what can you do to support this church and the unity in this church. Why? Because unity is a holy thing in the eyes of God. It is holy. It consecrates us to serve him. And then finally, we're going to come to a close. But unity refreshes God's people with divine blessing. It refreshes God's people with divine blessing. Psalm 133.3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So not only does unity set us apart to serve God, not only is it a great joy, but it refreshes us. It refreshes us. And so here it says here, it is like the dew of Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the highest point in modern-day Syria. So if you're to go there today, it is actually the highest mountain peak in that area near Israel. And it used to be legendary in how lush it was. It used to be just covered with vegetation and trees and forest. And in the mornings, dew would descend upon that mountaintop, and it would just cover everything. And so it was a beautiful sight. It was very refreshing. And David now says, that's unity. That's unity. It's like the dew falling upon the peaks of Mount Hermon, that lush mountain. And so I love this statement. I love how forceful it is. But blessing is like the dew, but it doesn't just trickle down. But it says here, God commands the blessing to come down. Did you catch that? It's not just like dew that trickles down. God says, I command it to come down. And that command is in the past tense. It says, God has commanded the blessing when there's unity. It's a done deal. God says, bless it. I blessed it. And so everybody wants to be blessed. Amen? Everybody wants to sit under God's blessing. You know, going back to that example of hiking at Torrey Pines, I remember after we hiked, we went to go eat uh, lunch at the picnic tables. And I remember this. 
because I wrote about this before, and I'm talking about it again. But I remember our family, we were all like shivering because it was so cold. But there was this one patch of sunlight in that park bench area. And so we were all kind of like huddling under the sunlight to just kind of get a little warmth, right? But that's the picture here, is don't you want to sit under...